Hello there and welcome to Talent and Growth. Thanks for being with me today. Whatever you've got your eyes on, I know I'm in your ears. So I appreciate that. You could be listening to anything and you're listening to Talent and Growth. So thank you very much. Today, we're joined by Ben O'Mahony, who is the CEO and co-founder of Jobs ASI. He's on a mission to give recruiters superpowers with AI and dramatically improve the candidate experience. And he's got a really interesting background because he worked in a recruitment agency uh, as a recruiter, that is. Then he moved on to becoming a head of talent. Then he became a director of operations. Then he became a senior data engineering manager. Then he was a data head of data engineering. Uh, and now he is the founder of an AI-based business, which is there to support and help in-house talent teams. So what a career, what a guy. Um, really interesting, interesting talk about AI, of course, of course, it's AI. It's all we talk about these days, AI. But it's really cool, really interesting stuff with Ben and the impact of um, AI and HR and talent and recruitment processes and also the way we use our data, which is really, really key as well. So Ben's a great guy. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Here we go. Ben, big welcome to Talent and Growth. How are we doing today? Yeah, really good, really good. It's uh, miserable outside, but yeah, good conversation. Looking forward to it. A great time to record a podcast then. And I actually put a, I think I put out on LinkedIn a little message to my network asking who people thought I should be speaking to in 2024 to make this series a great one. And your name came up. So how does that feel? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's great to, great to get the opportunity to have a chat, man. So yeah, um, yeah, I always think it's one of those ones where it's like you hope, you hope it's, you, uh, you, can, you can live up to those sort of recommendations, but hey-ho. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you will. And if, if you don't, we just won't air the episode. So it's all good. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> I, yeah, I knew. But yeah, win-win, right? You know. <laughs> Perfect. So look, let's kick off. Who are you? Tell us about who you are and what you do. Cool. Yeah. So I'm Ben O'Mahony. I'm uh, CEO and co-founder of Jobs ASI. So we build um, artificial specific intelligence for uh, in-house talent teams. So my background, I studied maths. Then I went into recruitment, talent acquisition. Um, before slowly moving in-house into into um, uh, startups and finally moving across into sort of data and machine learning. So I've actually been like head of data, head of uh, uh, engineering for the last four or five years, building data and machine learning products, which has been, yeah, really interesting career transition. But uh, last year, uh, made the decision after being made redundant that hey, actually, I would like to bring those sort of two disparate experiences together and really focus on building, you know, machine learning and data tools for for talent professionals. Because, you know, from, from where I can see, there's just not nearly as much investment in this area as there is in, say, for example, sales or marketing. Um, you know, so actually building some of these things is like, yeah, very interesting personally, but also I think really needed by, um, you know, people who are just getting inundated with, you know, AI, um uh powered applications the volume of applications has just gone through the roof so you know helping people out that's that's yeah that's what we're that's what we're here for and break break it down just i suppose top line what's what what problem is your product solving yeah so i think um one of the main ones that we're sort of focused on at the moment is this uh so we call it the chicken plucker problem uh so one of our early customers they had um, a chicken plucker apply for their head of engineering role. And, you know, uh, they were just like, right, why? You know, this is clearly like a spam application. Like, how can we get rid of get rid of that? And so that, that's one of the things that we're looking at. And I think generally in the last couple of years, the volume of applications has started creeping up, um, which I think is really positive, right? If you've got 
more people applying to roles, you're actually searching in a larger pool without having to do the headhunt. So that actually means you're much more likely to get good inbound. Um, but when you've got a normal distribution of talent, if you get more at the good end, you're also going to get more at the crap end. So, um, you know, finding a way of sort of helping talent teams deal with that volume of applications, that's something that, you know, we're, we're really focused on. We're also looking at a couple of other bits and pieces around, you know, when you're going to close a role and, and um, you know, as part of that applications, one of the really interesting things we're looking at is like location red flags where actually we're finding like 10 to 30% of applications are coming from a place where you may not be able to sponsor a visa, um, you know, or you don't offer remote work and they are 400 miles away, maybe in the same country, but, you know, just, just you know, not, not able to really employ them. So, you know, these, these are the sort of problems that we're, we're looking at at the moment. Fantastic. Well, looking forward to following the journey of your business and hearing about uh, hearing how you're going to help uh, the well the recruitment market, really. So looking forward to follow, following you guys. So let's talk about um, you're someone who's involved in HR and AI. How do you see the intersection of these two fields shaping the future of recruitment? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a super interesting time. There's obviously a lot of change happening. And I think there's sort of um, a real awareness in um, you know, HR and talent that this stuff is round the corner, but also a sort of reticence around like, um, you know, oh, like, is this fair? Is this unbiased? You know, quite rightly, these are things that need to be answered, questions that need to be answered. Um, is it effective? Is it actually going to be useful? And I think we're starting to see the sort of large scale deployment of some small features like the sort of transcription for video calls and summarization. That's pretty cool. Um, you know, and actually um, also some legislation coming through that's going to really curtail, um, you know, it with good reason again, um, because this this sort of, you know, we've changed people's lives in talent, right, in recruitment, um, you know, and, um, you know, making sure that that's safe and fair is, is really important. So there's a lot of legislation that's coming through that addresses these sorts of things. Um, yeah, lots and lots of different aspects we could talk about, whichever one sort of strikes you, I suppose. But, well, what sort of legislation is coming through that people should be aware of if they not haven't got their ear to the ground on that? Yeah, so um, the classic uh, couple are, there's the New York um, uh, automated employment decisions. Um, so that means that anything that's making an automated employment decision needs to be audited for biases, um, which I think is pretty, you know, good <laughs> pretty standard right you should be checking mm. if you're if you're making an employment decision you should be auditing to make sure that you're not um yeah like you're being fair and equal across these different distributions um then there's also um from the eu um there's the high risk category uh for tools that um basically have well, kind of anything to do with work and people um so you know that that's where um, you know, they're again high risk. It's going to have to be auditable. It's going to have to be like established that you are, um, you know, as far as can be reasonably proven, um, unbiased. So, um, yeah, those are the sort of major pieces of legislation coming through, and I think they're really positive, right? Because you kind of you want something like this. That's that's you know, if if for something to be valuable, um, it has to have a good impact, and for that to have an impact, you need to make sure that it's having a positive impact and not just a 
you know, reinforcing existing stereotypes, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, look, I, I know one thing that you're you're big on is statistics and the correct use of them. So, what what challenges have you observed in the current use of statistics, like time to fill, a hotly debated statistic in in talent acquisition? How how could we be utilizing statistics more effectively? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, there's a lot of stuff around this. There seems to be endless debates around what time to fill, time to hire are, you know, and and like it'd be great to standardize that and move past that because there's just a lot of content, well, a lot of empty content, in my opinion, about like defining these things when they seem like, you know, the definition of these things is relatively trivial. Um, and then uh, I think the other thing that we look at is we don't look at the distribution of those statistics. We only look at the average. And that's actually, you know, not always the best in terms of um, one of the best examples and analogies I've seen for this is uh, do you know the brand like good grips where they do like scissors and and can openers and stuff like that i don't but okay. hear me, I'll, I'll hear you yes i do you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it doesn't matter we can look them up after but um good, good grips uh every product design a lot of product design designed for the average right mm. they give you like what the scissors should be like you know like here are 12 scissors it looks kind of like the rest of those 12 scissors so good grips take, took the opposite tack and they designed for the extremes. So they look at the top 10% and bottom 10% of users in terms of, um, you know, uh, strength and mobility. So they'll look at like a, a bodybuilder who can crush an apple in his hand, you know, and design it so it works for them. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, uh, an old granny who you know maybe has like difficulty with grip strength and dexterity and design for them and if you design for the extremes you inform the middle whereas if you design for the average you only fit the average and actually what happens is anyone who falls outside of that is you know disadvantaged and i think we mm. do this all the time in a lot of our statistics where we look at like okay cool what's the average engagement average engagement across a company isn't useful like but i want to look at like the top 10 percent engaged and the bottom 10 percent engaged and see if i can understand some stuff around those populations right like is the bottom 10 percent all in one area are they all reporting into one manager you know <laughs> these are the sort of questions that are actually inform whereas like if you're like hey like average engagement is up it's like uh, i suppose you know great pat on the back like it's not actionable in the same way right um you know when you go down and look at the distribution that's when you start to see ways in which you can affect change yeah i think it's a, i suppose that the i suppose thinking about it in the perspective of a time to fill if we're yeah. looking at uh a job that's been you know their time company's time to fill generally 30 days they've got one job that's been open for 18 months and it's going to just completely skew the figures and they're almost meaningless aren't they well, it, precisely, exactly that. If you're looking at the the um, top ten percent of time to hire, like i.e. the longest or the you know whichever way around you're doing it, and all of those roles are have one consistent hiring manager, then you've got loads more data to say, hey, like by the way, you know you're responsible for three out of our four longest roles to hire. <laughs> like, you know, in this this other department is you know might vice versa be responsible for you know, 10% of your quickest 
time to hires. And you can say, hey, what are they doing right there? Maybe it's different recruiters managing the process. You know, you, you need to look into more detail around that sort of stuff. But it highlights areas where you might find those improvements, where you might find those, um, uh, you know, bottlenecks and, and problems, right? And, and in a way that, like you said, you know, if you've got one role that's been open for 18 months, that might skew, that might bring down, if you hire every other role within 15 days, you know, from opening it, which would be incredible, right? Like your average might be 30 days because that outlier skews the whole data so much. And actually that, that, that's why average can sometimes like, you know, hide, hide some of these sins basically. Gotcha. Okay. So understanding the, the distribution of hiring times is crucial. So how can companies use this information then to, to streamline those hiring processes? Yeah. So like, like I said, I think you got, we want to look at those top or bottom 10%. Um, you know, or 20%, whatever it looks like, right? Um, but look at those outliers um, and, and understand why they're outliers so that you've got some uh, understanding that you're not going to get from the ATS necessarily, but you're going to get from sort of, right, okay, cool, like some further analysis. Okay, what's what are the com- common themes between these things? What are the things that are different between these two populations? So, um, yeah. That, and that might give you that might inform uh, which sort of intervention you want to look at. Um, you know, for me, it's probably going to be stuff like who's the recruiter running the process, who's the uh, who's the hiring manager. You know, uh, things like how many times have we changed the job description? <laughs> like that's going to be a classic one for like uh, you know uh, re- you know like rec- recruitment process dragging along, and now then you've got that that sort of thing to say hey like that's not necessarily a bad thing you know i don't think that it's terrible if you don't know what you're looking for but you know there's something in that area to spend your time trying to find that person but it, it, it you know it's something that you can say great can we eliminate this from uh what we would see as like a delivery type role where we're saying like hey we know that we need to hire 10 of these roles and there's no you know we know how to do this well so like Okay, let, let me let me look, give you once we know once we've got tight bounds of what we're looking for, let's do that. You know, maybe it's leadership hires that you want to treat in a different way. You know, maybe that's a consistent thing about time, roles that take long. And you can make that business decision to say, hey, yeah, like we should spend a long time finding the right leaders in our organization. But if your if your incentives are to maximize like um you know, to minimize time to hire as a as a recruitment team then maybe it's worth carving out those leadership roles because your your goals will be at odds with the organizational goals and that will lead to some like hey you know your time to hire is way up this quarter it's like yeah because we hired three leaders and we agreed to take our time on them you know like having that separation and saying okay cool like we're carving out leadership roles for this okr or target or whatever it is that that's something that will then you've got a number now that everyone's aligned with and there's no there's less friction between like you're not trying to say like let's hire this leader as fast as possible and everyone else is like whoa like we need to find the best person in this particular field so it's it's things like that that might be potential interventions but again this is something that talent team you know people in recruitment know really well like that's not a problem for them they understand that intuitively because of years of like hiring it's just having the data to back that up and then like it not negatively impacting 
other other KPIs that you might have agreed with the business to make sure that you are delivering a good level of service and kind of, you know, to some degree, proving that you're doing a good job, right? Um, you know, and that, that for me is like, okay, cool. Well, we've agreed that this one, we want to take some time on it. It's more of an exploratory search. We may not even hire for it, right? Okay, let's carve it out of the main flow of delivery and be very definite about the fact that we're going to like, not include that in these statistics. We can optimize those statistics without that one like getting in the way of 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 um you know and making you know fundamentally making your numbers look bad at the end of the of the quarter. And you can do that easily if it's like top ten percent, because you're probably going to hire ninety percent not leadership hires. So you can say, right, you know, ninety percent of our roles are filled within thirty days. And that'd be something that you're like aiming to do. And you'll be like, yeah, we know we've got like now a in engineering you've got this idea of like an error budget so where you're like actually it's too expensive to be 100 percent correct like like the it's it's law of diminishing returns so you say right we want to be 90 percent within 30 days and we know that we're going to have 10 percent outside that and if you know for example that you're going to hire like like 20 percent of your roles are leadership roles that you think are going to last too long you know, make that 80% of our roles this quarter we want to hire within this time frame. you know, and, and, and have that be a little bit more nuanced than like, we want to increase average time to hire because uh, it gives you a bit more specificity about that, how you're going to interact with that. You can either, you know, if you want to just generally improve average time to hire, well, like you can like make the, uh, the roles that are already recruiting fast go even faster. You could try and reduce the number of roles that go longer. These and those are two very different approaches, and you don't. It doesn't exactly flow into like how you're going to make a decision based on that. Whereas if you go down one level deeper, you've already done some of that, like thinking around like, okay, cool. Well, like, you know, it looks like more of our roles are going to fall into this this area than we wanted. Right. Well, we can do something about that now because we know it's going to happen and we can see it happening. Love it, love it. Okay. Um, in your experience, how can AI be harnessed to improve talent acquisition processes and enhance decision making? What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge, huge green field at the moment for a lot of this stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's hundreds of different ways. The ways I'm seeing it already have a big impact is in the sort of, um, you know, interview technology space where, mm. you know, tools there are already relatively advanced and like note taking. That's pretty cool. Um, I think, actually, funnily enough, there's a huge opportunity in terms of like bias, uh, like understanding bias in recruitment process, where actually we we don't have a good handles on this often, and it takes a long time to get a large enough data set to, to to have a certain amount of confidence that you know X or Y might be biasing our process because the volume has to be of a certain amount for you to find those like different. Uh, uh you know variables um i think there's a huge opportunity in like turning unstructured cv data into structured data so at the moment parsing is pretty good but you don't get a lot of like skills extraction in the same way that i think that would be really cool to like have a better understanding of what um people are doing and then yeah like huge in terms of like these tools as enablers and productivity gains for recruiters just in terms of like i don't know if you've played around with chat gpt to try and like write out some job descriptions write out some you know 
questions that you might want to ask based on that job description. You know, like being able to produce content like that and start, like, I don't think it's necessarily great for like a polished final edit, but it's amazing for giving you a first draft that's like, you know, 20 times better than if you just sort of regurgitated something or, or copied something else, right? For me, I think that's that's really useful in terms of that just time saving of like getting to something that you can agree or disagree with. Um, yeah, and again, we, we're looking at that decision-making piece around who can we safely reject to make sure that, you know, you have to review fewer CVs and get, um, you know, a higher ROI. So, you know, our, our sort of flagship product at the moment is around scorecarding applications based on the job description. So we create a scorecard, assess the candidate against that. And what we find is that when you stack rank our scores, you know, if you're searching on average in the bottom 10%, it'll take you 350 or more CVs to get one interview. Whereas in our top 10%, we're seeing like one interview every five or 10 CVs. And that's like huge productivity gain in terms of like, right, you know, now I can actually like really quickly go through a list of 500 CVs and be like, right, I'm spot checking the lower scores and I agree with them. Okay, I can batch reject people based on their score and then vice versa the other way of looking at it is let me just look from the top and let me just keep going through until i find my 10 or 15 or maybe even more interviews that i want to do for this role based on the candidates that have arrived so yeah it's things like that that will that will like really speed people up i think I don't know. Don't know what your take on this, but I've seen a lot of uptake uh, of AI on an individual level, but perhaps I haven't seen it so often implemented into an, into a business's DNA in terms of their talent acquisition strategies, which is probably a mm. missed trick. So, what what advice would you give to companies who are looking to fully integrate AI into their DNA? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think there's a piece, there's a really huge piece around like the culture of the business there, where um, you know you have to encourage that. Um, uh, I think it's very exploratory still, a lot of these tools. So you have to encourage that exploration as part of your DNA first. And then, you know, the evaluation of AI and its different applications in and, and its different levels of accuracy and efficacy. So one of the things that we do, we use uh, Copilot for coding. We use um, uh, ChatGPT for, for, for writing docs. We use, um, you know, uh, AI, like, APIs for assessing our things. And we do that in a way that where we test it, you know, 100, 500, uh, 10,000 times and measure its effectiveness. So I think that's where you sort of get that sort of data AI mindset. And I think everyone talks about like a data driven culture, but very few really follow through with actually like going down that sort of level of experimentation. And there's a good reason, right? There's some parts where the ROI isn't large enough. Like I remember, um, you know, working in in-house talent where someone had to log all of their outreach and whether it's a success or failure manually in a spreadsheet. And now that's a great experiment to run, you know, or where you're maybe A-B testing whether a particular outreach message works well or not. Um, but if it doubles your amount of time to do a reach out on LinkedIn, then the productivity gain has to be more than double because otherwise you're wasting your time, right? So just like limit that, do it for a week and then 
you know, use that data. So, so that's, that's what often happens, right? The, if the measurement, the cost of the experiment is more than the potential productivity gain, people don't experiment. And so, yeah, like it, it's, it's like, how do you bring that sort of understanding and thinking into the business? And that itself will be great from another note of other reasons, even if you're just experimenting, AB testing in other parts of your business. So yeah, that, that's sort of that experimentation mindset, I think is critical. And then, then you see it for what it is, right? If it provides you differentiation and value, you keep it. If it doesn't, get rid, you know, you don't pay for it. And, and yeah, uh, there's different areas where I think it will work well and different areas where, you know, it's, it's still too, too early in its, uh, in its evolution. How do you balance the importance of that human intuition with the data-driven decision-making, which we say and want to, to have in the recruitment process? I mean, that's the secret sauce, right? Oh, if I could solve that, then yeah, I'd be a, a multimillionaire. But yeah, that's that's where I think um, that's it's super interesting to to sort of explore that problem. I don't think we're going to solve it. Um, but I think that people definitely devalue intuition more than they should. And when we talk about data, right, we always talk about quantitative data, so numbers, mm. you know, and like the world is sort of run on spreadsheets. And I think one of the problems that you get with uh, people and people and talent is that we we tend to be very good at qualitative data. So, you know, the difference between you've heard, you know, um, uh, James or Mike moaning about something you have that intuition about how much to index that as an, a real problem or not, right? Based on your history and relationship with them, right? And, you know, like, and then if Gemma says that, then you're like, okay, cool. Like, this definitely is something that, you know, she'd never normally say that. So, like, this is something that's super important that we should really pay attention to. And that can be very difficult to quantify and explain to a leadership team and, you know, really take action on. But it's super important that we, when you remember, when you talk about data-driven cultures, you talk about the fact that actually running a numerical experiment on this would take more bang, you know, more, more, you know, more cost than it's, than it's worth the solution, right? And actually you should be fine to trust your intuition on these things because that intuition is built on the data that you've experienced as a human, right? It's just, it's not in a spreadsheet. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, you know, a lot like, can you make, de- can you make decisions in a, uh, in like the lack of, with the lack of data? Do you do that well? And are you empowered to do so? And are you okay to be wrong? And can you then, when you do have data, like use that data as something that enables rather than something that just says, you know, hey, like you don't have any data, go away and come back when you've got data. Because that's like, you know, that's, that's the, that's the adverse data culture, right? Where you're like, nothing can happen until it's in a spreadsheet. And that's also very slowing and, you know, um, disempowering to a lot of people, especially those who care more around um, qualitative data than quantitative data. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of user design research does a lot of, has a lot of really interesting things to say about this. And, you know, doing that kind of approach can be really useful in a people and talent space where running a numerical experiment might be more challenging. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Well, look, it's been a fantastic chewing the fat with you about uh, AI and talent acquisition. And I hope to do so on your own forum on, yeah. on a Thursday sometime when I can make it. But tell other people uh, about that and if they should, why, that, why they should tune into that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, every Thursday, uh, 4 p.m. UK time, uh, we run a uh, weekly uh, people in uh, people uh, AI in people and talent. Oh, God, it's a complete mouthful. I'm terrible at naming things, but hey-ho. Uh, it does what it says on the tin. So we uh, we look at the most recent AI news um, and how talk about how it relates to people and talent. And again, this is not like a deep dive on like technical LLMs or AI or machine learning or anything like that. It's very much more around like, um, you know, last week we had some really interesting topics around Meta is open sourcing uh, Llama 2 and they're, they're, they're con- committing to do this. It was in their earnings chat was like the first thing they said open ai right we're going to share um share this stuff open source it that's really interesting because it's also a great way of training people and in, in like you know this is how zuckerberg is thinking about this he's using that to put those tools into the environment developers use them now we can hire those engineers because they know our technology already you know we've released version 3 we use version 5 internally if they know version three, like the back of their hand, bring them in. They're already halfway there to, to getting going on version five. So by by doing this, it's actually a really clever, both in terms of like go to market and how you'd normally think about of a, a company building product, but it's also a really nuanced way of doing talent acquisition and showing that, you know, having that data, which is qualitative data, but it's from, you know, a pretty impressive company. You can set, you can take that then to to your your leader and say, hey, like such and such has been asking to open source something that's not called competency. Can we do that? And like, by the way, if we do that, like this is what we might expect from a talent acquisition point of view. So this is another argument in favor of you know spreading that word and you know building a a, a community of engineers that you might then be able to um, you know build from. And you you see how that sort of that kind of conversation. Is something that anyone in talent or people can get involved with. So it's not like, don't think of it as a scary sort of like, oh, like we're going to talk about like exactly how an LLM works. You know, it, it's very much more around like how it relates and how it might change the industry. And where can people find it? LinkedIn. Um, yeah, uh, at the moment, um, I'm going to get it on YouTube at some point, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, just follow me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. Um, you know, I post about it weekly and um yeah, unfortunately, LinkedIn doesn't post like enough around uh, boosting events. Um, but yeah, uh, it is what it is. So yeah, if you if you get on there and connect with me, then you'll see those posts and yeah, uh, be able to join. Fantastic, Ben. Thank you so much for being a part of Talent and Growth. Paul, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, really interesting conversation, and yeah, um, looking forward to seeing you on the uh, on the call at some point.